Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular, Sean. And I'm the very titular, Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre, and tries to find an answer. Hi, Carrie. Hi. <laughs> Sorry, you always call me Caroline. I usually do, but almost everyone else calls you Carrie. I just wanted to see what all the fuss was about. Mm, what do you think? I like Caroline better. Okay, well... Ain't It Scary with Sean and Caroline. Okay. Carrie's better for branding. You're right. There's no question. Well, yeah. Um, Carrie, we have, over the life of this whole podcast, but but I think also especially over the last six months or so, covered a lot of travel-related disasters. I don't know if this is you working out um, some kind of internal fears and anxieties, uh, but we seem to cover a lot of situations where transportation vehicles uh, run into problematic incidents of some kind from the recent uh, stint on the Titanic to the all the ghost ships of last fall. Mm-hmm. Um, any that I'm missing? Uh, TWA 800. TWA 800. I wouldn't call that a, a travel mishap. Um, but yeah, anytime I, I, co- I cover these kinds of disasters, especially when related to plane travel, it definitely has to do with that. And I think also partially it's me trying to convince myself after being cooped up for a few years and not really getting to do a ton of travel, like, oh, well, you know, the grass isn't greener, the, the ship could sink, you know. So I'm trying to, to tell myself it's not better to be traveling, you know, but I know it is. It, it for sure is, as long as something like today's story doesn't happen. Oh, boy. Um, today, we are talking about the crash of Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571, which crashed into the Andes Mountains on October 13th, 1972, in what has come to be remembered as, depending on who you talk to, either the Andes Flight Disaster mm-hmm. or the Miracle in the Andes. Kind of a glass half empty, glass half full there. So I only vaguely, I I only know really the sort of Wikipedia, like the top synopsis, like the first paragraph that they they kind of cover everything. That's what I know about this. And I also know that the show um, Yellow Jackets on Showtime is partially based on this real life event, or at least inspired. I mean... There's a lot going on in that show. And uh, the second season's coming out. So this feels very appropriate time-wise. Absolutely. Um, So what do you know then? I guess that's a good place to start, Carrie. What do you already know about this story? I mean, can I say spoilers? Uh, Yes. Yes. Don't say how many people make it out alive if you know that. I don't know that. What I think is that this was a... uh, a soccer team, a football team 
that was being transported uh, via this plane, and it crashed. And uh, they, you know, I think it, it might have been winter or whatever, maybe weather reasons. They're in the mountains. They can't get out. Uh, they only have so many survival necessities with them. And I think cannibalism gets involved. Um, and some do make it out alive. You're right on some counts, wrong on some others, Carrie. And let's start right here. This is not a story about a soccer team. What? Yeah, um, it is referred to as the like South American soccer team story or the soccer team in the Andes story. Yeah. Like, like I, I, I think that gets repeated incorrectly a lot. Um, but this was an amateur club rugby team. Oh, okay. Um, they did call it football. It's you know these are all forms of football or soccer, mm -hmm. but um, this is much close. Yeah, it's what you would call rugby if you were in the U.S. or in Europe or in Australia. Okay. So it's a much rougher game. Mm -hmm. um, and as you might imagine, in Montevideo, Uruguay, where uh, the old Christians Club rugby team was based in 1972, um, soccer, not rugby, um, was the local and indeed the national and indeed continent-wide and indeed worldwide. Except um, for us, for some reason. Passion of the entire globe. Um, but at the old Christians Club, it was the rugby team that showed promise. Well, the, it, the, it was. The Old Christians Club was a rugby team. Um, the team had first been founded in 1965, so seven years previous, by alumni from the Stella Maris College, which was a school, a local school that had been started by the Christian Brothers. And the Irish monks there taught rugby because they felt like it taught the boys uh, the good Christian values of suffering. Beating the shit out of each other? Well, of suffering together in silence. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Rugby games are so silent. Soccer doesn't have nearly as much suffering to, to <laughs> suffer through. So, In 1971, this team was getting some, some pretty good local buzz. They were really one of the best amateur teams in Uruguay. Mm -hmm. And in 1971, they chartered a flight to Chile to play an exhibition versus the Chilean national team, which they actually won. Um, so this is all in South America. So they're going like cross continent or how long is this flight? Uh, yeah. Th this flight is just a couple of hours. Well, oh, okay. No, I think it's like a five or a six hour flight. Okay. I mean, South America's huge. Yes, exactly. But they don't have to fly across the whole continent here. It's just a quick hop over into Chile, which is the next country over. Mm-hmm. So in 1972, they had the same kind of plan, a flight to Argentina this time, a little further, flying over Chile in order to play an English club team that was flying in just for the occasion, to, it, once again in, in an exhibition match. Mm -hmm. So pretty cool, pretty exciting for the um, team, but it would ultimately kick off a 10-week saga of survival that would capture the whole world's imagination and would later be immortalized in the book Alive, which is our main source for this um, episode today. Yeah, my, my dad suggested this book to me a long time ago, which is why we had it in our little downstairs library. And he also raved about the movie. So um, I'm very excited to hear the story. Yeah, I haven't seen the movie yet, but I really want to watch it now because I have poured this book into my head. Mm-hmm. And I love these kinds of survival stories too, like Everest and, and all that. I think it's really fascinating what people are capable of when facing impossible odds. Oh, absolutely. This is really inspirational in, in that kind of way. 
But um, also like heartbreaking and horrifying. Oh, trust me. Yeah, we'll we'll get a lot of that too. Yeah. Um, Piers Paul Reed is the author of Alive, and um, I think his account is basically viewed as the definitive one. It was taken from interviews with several of the um, members of that rugby team just after their rescue. And um, a couple of those guys, at least Nando Parado and Roberto Canessa, who you'll hear those names a bunch in this story. Mm -hmm. um, At least those two guys have also written their own books. Kind of like with Everest, everyone had their own, like Beck Weathers had his own one. It wasn't just John Krakauer. Exactly. But in this case, these books were written like 30 and 40 years after the events. So um, I don't know. I I actually feel like Reed's read uh, on events is actually probably the most um, accurate one. But the books don't disagree with each other very much in any case. Mm -hmm. So like I said, it was rugby, not soccer. Mm-hmm. An amateur, not a professional team. Not professional. And in fact, they had to raise money. So they were going to have to charter a plane from the Uruguayan Air Force. Mm-hmm. Um, and the team didn't have enough money, you know, just amongst themselves to do that. And they also didn't have enough bodies to fill the plane. So they had to fundraise and sell additional seats on the plane. Oh, God. To their friends, their families, um, supporters of the club, some just young kind of social Democrats who were curious about the um, socialist experiment going on in Chile at the time. Oh, no. Also, imagine donating to that GoFundMe and then the plane crashes and all this happens. Like, what a what a surreal thing. Oh, I mean, it's, it is it is really heartbreaking, and actually about 10 seats were still... They managed to get the money together for the plane, but there were still like 10 seats open, so then some of the boys on the team just brought extra family members along who oh, wouldn't have come God. otherwise. Um, there was one woman named Grazielli Mariani who bought the last seat after someone else had dropped out, so really last minute, um, so she could get to her eldest daughter's wedding, which was going to oh, be nearby. God, all right. So eventually, 40 passengers and the five-person crew would finally set out in a Fairchild FH-227D. It's, um, you know, it's, not a, it's not a huge plane, but it's not one of these really scary single-prop planes or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was four years old and almost 800 hours in active flight. And you would hope, since it's an Air Force plane, that it would be a, a good functioning plane? You would hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I can tell you that this particular Fairchild, some of the pilots in the UAF, it had kind of a reputation for being underpowered, and some of the pilots called it the lead sled. Oh, great. Which isn't, it doesn't bode well for what this plane is going to do in just a moment. Um, but you did have Colonel Julio Cesar Ferradas at the controls, and he was an experienced pilot with the UAF with more than 5,100 cockpit hours under his belt. He'd actually made this particular flight across the Andes 29 times before, so they were in really good hands there. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a co-pilot as well, and that was Lieutenant Colonel Dante Hector Lagarara. Lagarara. I... I, my mouth is going to have trouble with a lot of the I, with names because I can't, I can't do anything with an R. Hmm. Um, it's that Irish tongue. Yeah. So Dante Hector Lagarara, Lagarara is, the, is, <laughs> is what I'm going to have to do, um, was on a training flight. He hadn't actually um, gotten like accredited yet or licensed yet. 
Okay, big difference. So everybody set out October 12th, 1972. And there are five different ways you can safely pass through the Andes Mountains by plane, or at least that's how they reckoned it at this time. Mm-hmm. The shortest route was 120 miles and almost straight shot to the west. But to do that, you had to be at an altitude of 25 to 26,000 feet to get over the highest peaks. And that was a little too close for comfort to the Fairchild's 28,000 foot like operating ceiling. Couldn't go above that. Mm-hmm. So the safest route for an aircraft like this and the standard operating procedure in this situation was to make a 370-mile route instead that did a big U-turn down around the mountains south and then north um, once you got to Curico. Okay. And they were already underway when a storm front began to pass through. Hmm. Obscured vision over the Andes and um, they weren't going to be stupid. They weren't going to push their luck. So the plane put down for the night in Mendoza, Argentina. See, I had it backwards before. You're flying over Argentina to get to Chile. Okay. The passengers, a lot of times I'm going to say boys. Sometimes I'm going to say the men. These are amateur soccer players. They're between 18 and 22 years old for the most part. And there's at least one woman, you said? Uh, yeah, there's several women. Some of okay. their moms have come. Oh, jeez. Okay. Um, and How many total? Uh, there are 40 passengers and five crewmen. Okay. And I think about 18 or so of the passengers are, are members of the soccer team. Mm-hmm. So boys or men, whatever you want to call the players, uh, they and the rest of the passengers got hotel rooms for the night. Um, and whenever the pilots, they, the pilots were hanging around together um, on this overnight stop. And whenever they saw the rugby players, the players would be going, hey, when can we get going again? You know, they, they were they were excited to get going already. Mm-hmm. Um, and for good reason, this plane was air force property wasn't like a normal commercial flight and since it was military it couldn't just be in argentina for like a long time oh because people would think it was like a spy plane or something yeah so like if this delay went for another night they would have to just turn around and go back home and then they were going to miss their game yeah so the next morning when the conditions over the andes hadn't improved but reports said they were expected to by afternoon It was wheels up. Everybody piled onto the plane and got going. Mm -hmm. Lieutenant Colonel Lagarara, the co-pilot in training, had the controls as there was zero visibility in the mountains thanks to the continuing cloud cover. Why would he have the... This is his test flight. I mean, wouldn't you want the guy who has experience to be doing something with zero visibility? Yeah, but I gather the entire path through the mountain area here was zero visibility. Okay, so weather. have that guy do it. But he, he can't fly the whole time. I don't think it's allowed. <sighs> okay. You can remember, you can't pull over and take a nap when you're in a plane, so they have to have rules about... That's why you have two pilots. Yeah, but you can autopilot and swap. You can't do that in a car. Well, in any case, Lagarara had the controls, and again, zero visibility. They were completely dependent on instruments for um, their bearing, their location, everything. Just radio beacons. About 3.21 p.m., just after they navigated the Planchon Pass, Lagarara contacted Santiago Air Traffic Control and told them he expected to reach Carico about a minute later. Mm-hmm. Now, Curico is the location of the radio beacon I had mentioned where they were supposed to turn north. 
descend another 11,000 feet as they were getting out of the mountains and uh, maintain that altitude for the rest of the flight. And at Planchon Pass, they should have been at least 35 or 40 miles away, still like 11 minutes from Carrico. Mm-hmm. But just three minutes later, La Guerrara told Santiago Air Traffic that he was passing Carrico and pulling north. Did anyone say, hey, this doesn't add up? Nope. Uh, they didn't have, they didn't know exactly what his position was. They told him he had permission to descend. Oh, God. Okay. Later analysis would show that he had not only turned too early, but he was also turning to the wrong heading for if he had been turning at the right spot. I just have like dread in my stomach right now. The weather and the turbulence took a turn for the worse. And inside the cabin, there was shaking and lurching uh, to the point that one laughing member of the rugby team sitting near the back of the plane grabbed the uh, microphone to go, um, "Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please put on your parachutes. We're about to land in the Cordillera. That's the Spanish word for mountain range. Mm -hmm. Uh, The turbulence got even worse almost as he finished his sentence, it sounds like. So funny, Dave. And a few times the plane hit air pockets and just plummeted oh, hundreds of feet. Oh, God. It's my nightmare. Okay. The boys were in pretty good spirits. Some of the passengers were getting nervous. Um, the boys, meanwhile, were going, conga, conga, conga. <laughs> you know, uh, as as 20-year-olds will do, right? They have no fear of, of death. Yes. YOLO. Um, one of the several medical students who had come to accompany the team doctor um, a Roberto Canessa asked the woman next to him if she was afraid, and she said she was. And um, I guess in kind of a show of courage, he pulled out a rugby ball and started throwing it around the cabin. Great. So now the rugby ball's bouncing around. Um, they're they're doing the conga. I think uh, after one of these <laughs> kind of drops, the boys started going ole 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 ole. <laughs> oh no. But everyone fell silent as that second downdraft pushed the plane out of the clouds. And someone in the back asked, is it normal to fly so close? Oh, my God. Because the wingtip was almost touching a sheer cliff face. Oh. And at this moment, the... Then there's no more Olay Olay no, at this point. totally silent. And oh, God. the crew in the cockpit must have realized it's seen the same thing the boys were seeing at that moment realized they weren't where they thought they were and the plane everyone in the plane felt it begin to climb sharply as whoever was at the controls at this point applied maximum power until the aircraft was nearly vertical engines straining for all they could the plane stalled out and the whole frame was shaking on the inside oh, no there is a ground collision alarm in airliners like this, and at this point, that was going... <sighs> so, it's panic in the fuselage. I have to say that uh, Panic in the Fuselage is my least favorite band of 2005. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, I saw them with Fallout Boy. Mm-hmm. At 3.34 p.m., 10 minutes after La Guerrera had first talked to Santiago Air Traffic Control, he managed to get the nose of the aircraft over the top of the ridge of this mountain. Mm-hmm. 
but the lower part of the tail cone probably clipped the very tip of the mountain, Mm -hmm. which would have made control even harder. Right, because now you're jostled. And so a moment after they crested the peak, the right wing of the plane was sheared clean off by a cliff face. So the passengers looking out that side of windows saw the mountain loom up, then, and then the wing of the plane was gone, and in fact was whipped around behind them to tear the tail off the plane. (laughs) This makes me want to puke. The rear of the fuselage was ripped open, and basically all the air inside was sucked out into the freezing cold outside. Up to and including two rows of passenger seats. And they just... Well, there were three passengers in those seats. Gaston Costamal, Alejo Huni, and Guido Magri. I'm going to butcher some of these names and I apologize. Mm -hmm. Uh, The navigator, Lieutenant Ramon Saul Martinez, and the steward, Orvito Ramirez, were all sucked out into the wind. So five people? Yeah. Oh, God. The players all strapped into their seats. Well, yeah. No, I mean the guys who, the, the boys who just got pulled out of the back of the plane were in their seats. Oh, oh, yeah. Oof, gosh. That's awful. The aircraft coasted 200 meters or so further and higher before the next collision sheared off the left wing. And now it was just the front three quarters of a fuselage flying through the air. And there's just, I mean, you're not steering at this point. You're just, oh, no. you're just coasting. There's no rudder because that was on the tail. Yeah. And there's no wings. There's just nothing. You're just sitting there. Yeah. The propeller from the left wing actually bit into the fuselage. I don't think it killed anyone, but everybody would have seen that and it would have been terrifying. Um, and two more passengers, Daniel Shaw and Carlos Valletta, who I don't think um, must not have been wearing seatbelts, not blaming the victim. I'm just trying to figure out how this happened. Um, uh, it seems like it happened very quickly. Fell out of the gaping hole in uh, the rear of the plane. Awful. Two more passengers just gone. The front half of the fuselage then hit the ridge of a glacier at 220 miles an hour. <sighs> and so the fast deceleration caused every row of seats in the plane to be wrenched loose from its moorings on the floor, and they were all thrown into each other like dominoes, just crushing everyone in between them. Oh, my God. And meanwhile, the plane itself, the the remains of this plane, skidded nearly half a mile downhill like a lead sled Mm -hmm. before hitting a snowbank and stopping dead. Okay, so what happens next? There was what you can only imagine was an eerie silence after that. Yeah. One of the boys had been saying a Hail Mary right up until that final impact with the snowbank. Mm-hmm. And then he just went, we stopped. Well, one person was alive. More than you would think were, were alive. Mm-hmm. And the fair child had finally come to rest in... It's new home where it would never it would never leave atop a glacier that had no name, but which after this time would come to be known as the Glacier of Tears. Oh, great. 
that's that boats well. Uh, now four more passengers had been killed in the impact and the jumble of seats. Were they ones that were closer to the front? Um, I, th- I actually don't. I don't know where in the plane they were sitting. I just know they were crushed under the seats. Mm-hmm. Um, they were very unfortunately the team doctor, Doctor Francisco Nicola, and his wife Esther Nicole. And also Fernando Vasquez, one of the three medical students that Dr. Nicola had brought with him. Mm. Um, the, so now there's two left? Yeah, and the, the fourth person killed was Eugenia Parado, Eugenia Parado, who was the mother of one of the players, uh, mm. Nando Parado, who we'll hear plenty about. Mm. The remaining medical students, Gustavo Zerbino and Roberto Canessa, um, dusted themselves off as best they could and went about helping the people who could be helped and assessing who, you know, was unhelpable. Mm-hmm. Um, Nando Parado, the son of the woman who I just, who was just crushed under the seats. Um, he had been crushed pretty badly too. He had a skull fracture and he was comatose. Mm. A, a boy named Enrico Platero. And again, when I say boy, we're young talking, man, young man, uh, Enrico Platero came up to, Canessa and was like, um, does this look bad to you? And there was a piece of metal, like a metal tube, uh, sticking out of his abdomen. And so at first Canessa was like, um, no, well, look at you, you're walking around, you're doing great. Here, why don't you help me help people? You know, just to, to take his mind off it, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, but then once they got kind of a calm moment, he went, okay, let me see that now. And he pulled the tube out Mm-mm. and said that it brought with it about six inches of stringy tissue that he was terrified were intestines and so he just kind of unhooked that and patted it back into place and bandaged the kid up because it was the best he could do yeah there were several bone breaks in the group obviously from the impact and the jumble of seats um both of arturo noguera's legs for example were broken in multiple places mm. Um, some people had compound fractures with the bone poking through the skin. Anyone who had that kind of injury did not make it to the rescue. Including the, the kid with two broken legs? Including the kid with two broken legs. Mm. A few of the boys said as they were trying to get their bearings in the immediate aftermath, and this is crazy, they looked back up at the ridge and they saw Carlos Valletta the boy who had been one of the two boys who had been pulled out of the plane the second time mm-hmm. in the air, just stumbling through the snow with kind of a blank look on his face. They said they called to him, but their words were lost on the wind. He looked like he may have heard them, might have been starting to turn towards them, but then he seemed to stumble, lose his balance, and they just watched him fall down the mountain. Oh, God. And just vanish into the snow. But he had survived the fall from the aircraft. Wow. The snow was almost impossible to walk through. You sank immediately into it. Yeah. So um, one of the boys figured out that he could use seat cushions as stepping stones or kind of like snowshoes. Mm-hmm. And uh, did that to reach the cockpit to see if the pilots could be any help. I'm going to doubt it. Um, no, no, they sure could not. Uh, on impact, 
both of the pilots had been thrown forward into the controls, which were now embedded into oh, their chests. God. Uh, Ferratas, that veteran pilot, um, was already dead. He'd likely been killed instantly on impact. Um, this boy said Lagarara's eyes fixed on him, and he begged him. He said, I, I have a revolver in my box in the cockpit. Please, please find it and shoot me in the head. You have to kill me. The boy declined. And Lagararo was left there. They couldn't get him out of the cockpit, so he was just left there. What would you do in that situation if someone asked you to do something like that? If I could do it, I would. It would also be useful to have the gun, but... Um, I, I mean, yeah, like you don't know until you're in that situation if you could bring yourself to do something like that. Because it's not... Ooh, it's not an act of, of anger or evil or whatever if they're asking you, but God. Well, as you know, the things these people will have to do to survive over the next two months, um, yeah, will be every bit as harrowing as that and, and, and worse. Mm -hmm. In total, there were 33 people left alive, though many of them were already in serious or critical condition. And we started with like 45-ish? 45, yeah. Okay. Wow. So now the first night was approaching. And the broken fuselage was the only shelter that they had. So the passengers huddled together in the very limited space that wasn't full of luggage and smashed up rows of seats and the corpses of their friends and loved ones and did their best to stay warm for their very first night in the snow, just kind of cuddling up for body heat and chugging Madeira wine. Mm -hmm. There were a bunch of bottles of Madeira wine. I think most of the, the wine went this first night. <laughs> oh, I'm just surprised it wasn't shattered. <laughs> um, La Guerrara, the co-pilot, could be heard throughout the fuselage all night, still moaning in pain, still asking for his gun. Uh, he was dead by the morning. Francisco Abal, Graziel. At least hand it to him if he can move his arms, you know? Like, oh, just leaving him like that. I don't know. Remember how hard it was just to get to the cockpit? Yeah. Yeah. Two more of the boys did that same trick with the, um, or maybe it was just um, Roberto Canessa who did the same stepping stool, stepping stone trick to get around there, but it was just to see if the radio worked, which it didn't. Great. Francisco Abal, Philippe Maricuran, Julia Martinez Lamas, and Graziella Mariani, she who had just wanted to go see her relative's wedding, also died overnight in the cold. Because of the cold or because of their injuries? Uh, because of their injuries. Mm -hmm. I mean, ex exacerbated by the cold. I'm it, sure, but you know, I didn't know if it was just hypothermia. It was negative 30. Yeah. And probably terrible wind chill, too. It's like Everest. Yeah. Now, of course, the Chilean Search and Rescue Service was notified within an hour of the missing plane. But there's nothing easy about finding a plane in this situation. They no. pretty quickly figured out it must have come down in the middle of the Andes in one of the most remote, inaccessible, uncharted areas of mountains in the world. Mm-hmm. And so the Andes Rescue Group of Chile was also brought in as uh, specialists. I don't know what the deal is on a glacier, but I know with Everest, like, 
people ask, why do they just leave bodies up there? Or why don't they bring medical help up with like a helicopter? But there's nowhere to land. You can't get close enough. You can't These get are just sheer cliff faces. You can't get choppers this high in some cases. Yeah, that, yeah, that too. And then, you know, you try to bring a plane in and who knows if it'll be any better than what just happened. So on day two, after the crash, a total of 11 aircraft from Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay were searching the mountains. At the crash site, the survivors actually saw planes overhead three different times, but none of them spotted them, unfortunately. Um, They tried to write SOS on the roof of the plane with lipstick, Mm -hmm. but they said they had just about finished their S when they realized it wasn't going to be big enough to see from the sky. And if they made a big enough one, they wouldn't have enough lipstick to finish the job, so they, they gave up. Um, in any case, after eight days, the search was abandoned as hopeless by SARS. Which, yeah. SARS. <laughs> Chilean <laughs> Search and Rescue Service. Um, now, question, how how big is the area they were searching? Because it's not like the entire mountains, right? They have to narrow it down to at least vaguely on their route. So, like, what is well, the mileage on this? Actually, when you're searching with 11 aircraft from three different countries, um, you can search a pretty... You can, but, like, what what's the, the area that they thought what they would be in? Is it hundreds of miles, thousands of miles? You probably got 100 square miles that, that they could realistically be in. And remember that all of it's because it's so mountainous... It's hard to visually scan. Oh, yeah. It's a needle in a haystack. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the search was finally called off after eight days, the hope was that renewed searches in December would turn the bodies up after the summer heat melted the snow. Because remember, we're in the southern hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Now, the survivors believed they were about 7,000 feet up um, based on the plane's altimeter. But that was wrong because it had stopped working before they did some additional panicked climbing. Mm-hmm. So their altitude was actually closer to 12,000 feet. Mm. And if you've ever spent any time in the Rockies or anyone ever anywhere else really mountainous. Oxygen. Uh, just one mile up. Like if you're in Denver, it's about 5,000 feet. Um, just one mile up, your body's not getting what it needs out of the air. And just a little walk, forget a hike, like, you know, a walk down the street will, will leave, um, if you're not conditioned, it'll leave you, you winded. Yeah, we talked about this with Everest. It's the reason that there are these different camps on Everest is because you're supposed to get acclimated. You're supposed to go to base camp and then go to the next one and spend however many days and then go to the next one and you get acclimated to it. I mean, you, you never really get used to it, but your body gets a little more accustomed to it. Uh, But a lot of these people have supplemental oxygen. I mean, these people are just dropped on 12,000 feet in the air immediately. Their bodies have no time to adjust. And that's over two miles up. So it's it's more than twice what I was feeling when I was doing that stupid hike in uh, uh, Denver (laughs) uh, or in Boulder. And you'll know, Carrie, from that uh, Everest episode that not just your oxygen needs, but your calorie needs... When you're at that height, because it takes your body so much more energy just to keep going, to keep processing that tiny amount of oxygen you are getting, um, your your body's need for nutrition is greater, too. 
Mm-hmm. Plus, you're so much closer to the UV rays of the sun. And I'm assuming there's, if this is a glacier, there's a bunch of snow around them. So that's reflecting the UV rays. You're getting blinded and you're getting like irradiated a little bit. I mean, it's... It's horrific. I don't know why people do these climbs. Snow blindness is a problem. It's enough of a problem that these guys will have to come up with a solution for it before Mm -hmm. too long. Mm -hmm. So the survivors now cleared the seats and the luggage from the fuselage. The seats must have taken so much work. Yeah. Um, And they stacked as much of the debris as they could in the open end of the plane. You know, first the rows of seats and then kind of they pushed the luggage in around it. Uh, to try to close it off from the wind as best they could. Mm-hmm. Then came their first really smart innovation. Um, they started cutting open the seat covers on the planes. Foam? Well, the foam, maybe, but the seat covers themselves were actually partly made from wool. And so they made, oh. albeit really thin, shitty, um, blankets. Well, I figure maybe they would stick the foam in the crevices and use it as insulation. Um, oh, sorry, it was minus... 30 celsius that first night so only minus 22 fahrenheit it was easy light work um but remember everyone here everyone on this team everyone who took this flight lives in a warm climate by the sea Mm -hmm. and many of these guys have never seen snow before and none of them had ever been so high in the mountains none of them had ever experienced altitude before So you just plopped in a winter nightmare. And you were traveling for a sports trip, so they completely lacked cold weather clothing. Yeah, they have shorts and cleats and... They had no equipment, they had no medical supplies, and they had almost no food. And the doctor's dead. And the doctor's dead. They have two medical students, a first year and a second year. God. And so they did some really smart... There's this guy named Philo Strouch who they called the German actually because he was this blonde German guy. So uh, uh, Philo figured out that they could take the sheet metal from under the seats and bend it into a cone and put some snow in it. And um, if they left it out in the sun, the snow would melt. Water. You get some water and uh, they would set a uh, the empty wine bottles because again, they'd cleared out all that wine pretty early. Um, they put the empty wine bottles underneath and catch uh, catch water. And that's how they started getting some drinking water after a couple of days had gone by. Smart. And Because stri- until then, you're just eating snow. Right. Um, if you can chip it off, because it's also all hard until the sun. Every day, the sun warms up and melts the top layer of snow, but then it so freezes So it's just like a again. slick, smooth surface, basically. Yep. Ice. It was also Strouch's idea to make three pairs of makeshift sunglasses to get around the snow blindness problem. Um, They used bra straps and cut out lenses from the solar shielding from the cockpit windshield. I'm telling you, this is very innovative. And used some copper wire for the frames and the kind of ear hangies. And uh, I I guess the bra straps probably around your head. They used wire to hold the uh, lenses in place and you had sunglasses. It's impressive. Yeah. Um, you also need a leader in a situation like this. And it's funny how, you know, team captain is a pretty artificial position. It's just like, yeah, he's the most, the guys like him and he's a good athlete. So, um, but in a situation like this, as on something like Ted Lasso. Um, I was just thinking of Ted Lasso. That position bears out. And if Ted Lasso and his, his boys got uh, uh, lost in the mountains in the Andes, you know that the team captain, whoever it was that season, would, would be stepping up. It would be Sam. 
And that was exactly the role of Marcelo Milo Perez, the captain of the rugby team, who emerged as a leader in this situation. And they play with this too on Yellow Jackets, uh, very interestingly. And for anyone who doesn't know, it's um, obviously fully fictional, but it's kind of a similar situation, but a high school girls soccer team. So there's a lot of that like sort of teenage dynamic at play and like girls being mean to each other, but you're also in this life-threatening situation. Yeah, this has very little like catty drama. There's none of well, that. Well, yeah, they're they're more adults and, um, you know, maybe you're not focusing on that stuff that makes a, a TV show good when you're just trying to find water. Yeah, this there was an incident on day like 54 where, um, where Roberto Canessa was in the midst of having diarrhea um, <laughs> because he'd eaten some rancid human flesh and then another uh, boy wouldn't move out of his way to have his diarrhea and so he uh, pushed that guy into a wall and that was worth like noting. So there, So there wasn't like... It's I not mean, like they were constantly sniping at each other. Yeah, but I think that was probably warranted. It was it was tough. They were in the fuselage of the plane. Listen, this gets bad. Yeah. This y- gets... Yeah, it sounds like it. This gets bad. Spoilers. Cannibalism diarrhea? Yeah, I think it's going to get bad. Well, they weren't there yet. So Perez, Milo Perez, this is the team captain, gathered up all of the food supplies they had and put it all together in a vanity case because it was so little that it all mm. fit in a vanity case, uh, to distribute to everybody fairly as rations. Mm-hmm. He also assigned and organized uh, kind of groups of roles so that everybody had a job to do uh, and some weight to pull. Mm-hmm. So Canessa and Zerbino, the medical students, and also a middle-aged woman who had made it this far named uh, Liliana Methal, uh, were kind of the medical team, so it was going to be their job to keep their strength up, so that they could, you know, people who people who knew how to nurse and take care of people were the uh, most important thing. Mm-hmm. So that was their main job. Although Canessa refused to not help out everywhere else, so um, he was like, "No, they, they, you know, you can't just put me in one." He liked being helpful, Roberto Canessa. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly the younger boys were assigned to cabin duty, keeping the cabin of the plane tidy um keeping the blankets dry they would inevitably get wet every night and you'd have to stretch them out on the snow in the morning to let them warm Mm -hmm. and dry out again uh and they would lay out the cushions all the seat cushions for everyone to everybody to sleep on at night most of the rest of the uh, survivors were busy making water most of their time um the problem was getting snow to push into the cone that wasn't too near the plane because everything near the plane was stained pink and red with the gore of their oh. friends. And I'm sure gasoline and, and just stuff that you want to put in your mouth. And it would only get worse over the next, yes, two months that they would be living here. Mm. Now, Nando Parado woke up from his coma after three days to find that his mother was dead and his 19-year-old sister was in serious condition, also from the initial crash. She finally succumbed to her injuries five days later. Um, again, as did almost everybody who had bone-out compound fractures. At this point, there were 27 passengers left. Huh. On day 11... After finding a transistor radio smashed between the seats of the plane and uh, fashioning an extra-long antenna out of some wire they found, the boys were able to get a signal. Mm. 
just in time to hear the news that the search had been called off. <laughs> no. Now, this is a movie scene, I'm sure. I'm sure this is in the movie. This is horrible. Well, it's such a good... I'm going to read from you what um, Reed has in Alive. The others who had clustered around Roy, upon hearing the news, began to sob and pray, all except Parado, who looked calmly up at the mountains which rose to the west. Gustavo Nikolic came out of the aircraft and, seeing their faces, knew what they had heard. He climbed through the hole in the wall of suitcases and rugby shirts, crouched at the mouth of the dim tunnel, and looked at the mournful faces which were turned towards him. Hey, boys, he shouted. There's some good news. We just heard on the radio. They've called off the search. Inside the crowded aircraft, there was silence. As the hopelessness of their predicament enveloped them, they wept. Why the hell is that good news? Paez shouted angrily at Nikolik. Because it means, he said, that we're going to get out of here on our own. <sighs> the courage of this one boy prevented a flood of total despair. I love that. I love that. This is great. This means That's we're getting Ted out of here. Lasso. <laughs> this is this kid is bad. He's a wow. bad motherfucker. Wow. Stone cold. Stone cold. I love uh, Nikolik. Um, <sighs> I have a feeling he's not going to make it. A lot of these boys aren't going to make it, Carrie. Um, as I said, the food situation was really bad. Mm-hmm. Um. In total, at crash time, the passengers had eight chocolate bars, one tin of mussels, three small jars of jam, a tin of almonds, a few dates, a few candies, a few dried plums, and several bottles of wine. And you've already heard that this survival story lasts over two months. Yeah, and we're on day 11. So if you're wondering how they're going to last that long... It's not on dried plums. As if you don't already know, it's probably the most famous thing about this story. And um, we'll get into the myths and realities uh, after the break. All right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. I'm not welcome. Well, I hate to tell you, Carrie, but we are getting to the the culinary portion of this story. Okay, I don't think that's the word for it. What did these people do to survive? And if you ask anyone what they know about this story, about the Uruguayan Air Force plane disaster, um, about the miracle in the Andes, um, they might not even know what sport the team played that crashed in that plane, but they will know that the survivors ate their friends after they died. Mm-hmm. It's like the Donner party. Yeah. You don't know. A lot of people don't know the exact circumstances or how everything happened, but you know, they ate people. You hear they ate people and your ears perk right up. Don't they? You sickos. Oh, I don't know if they perk up, but they definitely, the, att- the attention gets captured. Well, to put it like, suffice it to say, 
cannibalism was not plan A. And if it ever is, you leave that party. Um, the survivors divided the tiny, I told you what they had before the break. It was eight chocolate bars, a tin of mussels, three jars of jam, a tin of almonds, a few dates, a few candies, a few dried plums, and a few bottles of wine that were mostly gone the first night. It's like the stuff that would be left over on the floor after a JetBlue flight, but not the actual food that they have, you know? Like, oh, I found this old plum behind a seat, you know? The survivors uh, divided that food up into the tiniest portions they could to make it last as long as they could. Um, Nando Parado took this especially seriously because he was saving a little food on the side, I think, in hopes for when his sister woke up. Mm-hmm. And so after waking from his coma... Nando made a single chocolate-covered peanut last three days. And I know Nicolas Cage can uh, eat a peach for hours, so (laughs) he would do great here. Um, Either way. That's wild. How big was this peanut? um, It must have been a good good peanut with a nice chocolate shell. We're not talking about an M&M. Yeah. But um, still... That's wild. That's how that's how desperate the situation is. And even with that kind of careful rationing, after one week, all of the food was gone. Mm-hmm. And there were no animals. Yeah. And no vegetation on the mountain. Nothing they had seen since they came down out of the clouds. Mm-hmm. Soon the survivors were, and this is shades of Jamestown, trying to eat the leather straps off of the plane and articles of clothing and the seats and the luggage. Were they able to cook stuff? Um, Did they have fire? At this point, they hadn't gotten a fire going. They will later. Okay. So they're just just having raw leather. Yeah. Just chewing on leather. Um, they, <sighs> they got the insulation out from inside the seats and tried to eat that, but it only made them sick. Yeah. And so it was that Pretty soon after learning the search had been called off, the survivors decided together. And remember, they were out of food on the seventh day. They found out the search had been called off on the 11th day. So that's, they haven't eaten in four days. Mm-hmm. Before that, they weren't eating well. The survivors finally decided together that they would have to eat the protein-rich bodies of their fallen fellow passengers, which were waiting in the snow right outside. Um, these were mostly, remember, these weren't, it's not even They're like... loved ones, you, yes. most of them. These weren't even strangers, which wouldn't be easy in and of itself. Right. I mean, the Donner Party, you had several families and some knew each other, but some were strangers to each other. Some hated each other. You're right. But, but this group, everyone's at least friends or friendly, you know, mm-hmm. if not your actual relative or, or best friend or teammate. Roberto Canessa said... We had long since run out of the meager pickings we'd found on the plane, and there was no vegetation or animal life to be found. After just a few days, we were feeling the sensation of our own bodies consuming themselves just to remain alive. Before long, we would become too weak to recover from starvation. We knew the answer, but it was too terrible to contemplate. The bodies of our friends and teammates, preserved outside in the snow and ice, contained vital, life-giving protein that could help us survive. But could we do it? For a long time, we agonized. I went out in the snow and prayed to God for guidance. Without his consent, I felt I would be violating the memory of my friends, that I would be stealing their souls. We wondered whether we were going mad even to contemplate such a thing. Had we turned into brute savages? Or was this the only sane thing to do? Truly, we were pushing the limits of our fear. 
Uh, all the passengers were Roman Catholic, and some of them feared, even as they ate the flesh, that they were damning themselves to hell by practicing cannibalism. Is that in the Bible? Are we anti-cannibalism in the Bible? I mean, there's... I, d- I can't... We're, we're against mixing fabrics, right? I can't specifically tell you, but I would be... Not su- we, I'm not... Yeah. I would be surprised if Leviticus didn't have something about cannibalism. Cause it has something about everything else. Well, some of it, so much of it is like, does seem like coded practical um, hygiene rules for right. f- pre-medieval times. Yeah. Gosh. And you don't want to be the first person to bring up cannibalism. You don't want to seem too excited to try it. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be a, a team decision. Mm-hmm. Um, th- according to Reed in Alive, some of the passengers rationalized this decision by thinking of the Eucharist, though. Yeah. Body and blood of Christ and all that. Um, in fact, this is reportedly how Liliana Methal, the uh, third member of the medical team, and the last holdout on the human meat topic, mm-hmm. um, because she was strongly, strongly w- religious, she was eventually convinced to partake because, well, think of it like eating the body and blood of our Savior. You know, it's it's the only thing that's going to save you here. Mm-hmm. And this is what Jesus would want you to do. It was especially important to the group to keep her strength up because she was one of the few people with at least some medical knowledge and had been tirelessly nursing survivors, quote, like a mother and a saint. Was she the only woman at this point? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. There were a few other women, um, but not many. Yeah. Roberto Canessa finally got some broken glass from the airplane windshield and used that as an improvised cutting tool. And he sliced off the first three-inch strip of flesh for for himself to set an example for the others mm. and swallowed it down. Raw? Oh, yeah. Did he, did he say anything about it? Did he say... Oh, that it was disgusting. Right, but I mean... Ugh. It took a while, but later others would take their furtive kind of first bites and the next day more joined them. Um, eventually everyone who had survived up to this point would engage in cannibalism. There's, there was nobody who said, no, I'm not doing it. And and just refused until they died. And they're just taking pieces, just cutting pieces off as they go. It's very unusual. Well, remember that everything's preserved. Right. But usually people who engage in cannibalism, if they're forced to in these sort of survival situations, they'll remove anything that looks human. So usually hands will get a cut off, feet will get a cut off the, the head. Um, it's very unusual to just take little pieces bit by bit. I think it's different if you're in, say, Jamestown and you're starving to death, but it's temperate, right? And you're just in a... You're you can in a, kind of like dress the body in a way. Well... This, like you would a deer. Well, I, well yes, there's that. But I, I just mean, I don't think these guys have the energy to cut anyone's head off. Mm. I, don't, I think it's so cold. Yeah. I think it's so tiring just standing there. Yeah. Just every moment sucks. And I don't think you can cut someone's head off in this condition. No. Nando Parado wouldn't let anyone near the corpses of his mother and his sister. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were never eaten. He like guarded them and made it a, made it a rule. And everyone, everyone was eventually, you know, wow. it was pretty clear that Nando wasn't cool with anyone eating his family. And so everyone just left them alone. That is an astonishing amount of respect and willpower. 
Well, there were plenty of corpses, unfortunately. Mm. Now, you don't want to get good at this whole cannibalism thing, but the survivors did start figuring out some tricks. Like they would, they couldn't cook the meat, but they could dry it in the sun mm-hmm. to make it a little bit more palatable. So they would lay it out on the um, fuselage and let it, um, yeah, cook isn't the right word because it's so cold, but but let it dry at least. Uh, instead of just, because they were just otherwise just chewing on frozen human meat. Yeah. For the first few days, no one would touch anything but the skin and the muscle and the fat. But once supplies of that ran low on the first few corpses, they started digging into the hearts, the lungs, and um, eventually the brains. Unfortunately, that's where you're going to get some of that protein rich, especially uh, you get into bone marrow. I mean... Yeah, well, nobody's cracking bo- open bones here. Not, no, but I mean, you know, the, the deeper you get in, you get into these kind of nutrient-dense parts that, that their bodies are craving. Yeah, you want the brains, really. Zombies have the right idea. Well, you want those let's good not, let's not go meats. crazy here. Um, this was, in terms of living, not a situation that was going to be tenable for very long, <laughs> to say the least. And some of the survivors were now talking about, well, they're not looking for us anymore. Um, our only hope is going to be walking over these mountains to the west... into either Chile or Argentina, whichever countryside is is nearby. But we heard the co-pilot say we were past Carrico, so we're almost out of the Andes. There's, there's, you know, the snow line should be pretty close. But they also think that they're half as high as they are, too. Well, and the co-pilot was wrong, remember? I would have assumed that. They didn't. Because, I mean... I, we weren't supposed to be here, so obviously he wasn't getting it right. I'm not blaming him. I'm not victim blaming or anything. It must have been a very, very difficult situation, but I wouldn't assume he knew where he was. Mm, yeah, that's a good point, because he eventually crashed the plane? Yeah. Yeah, but you do assume, well, he's a professional. We're not even that. We're not even that. Yeah. Well, October 29th, just a little over two weeks into this ordeal. Things went from bad to worse. How could that possibly happen, Carrie? Weather? An avalanche (sighs) rolled down the glacier slope to engulf the plane, completely burying it as the survivors slept. While they were in it? Yeah, and the snow completely filled the fuselage. Immediately killing eight more survivors. Eight? Eight. Oh. Daniel Maspons, Juan Menendez, Diego Storm, Carlos Roque, Enrique Platero. He was the one with the metal sticking out of his mm-hmm. belly after the crash. Gustavo Nikolic. He was the one who said, oh, great, mm-hmm. we're getting ourselves out. Liliana Mithal. One of the doctors. One of the medical team, anyway, yeah. yeah. And Marcelo Perez, mm. the team's captain. Oh. How devastating. And so the loss of the team's captain and this kind of adopted mother figure was a double smash on their morale. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the plane was entirely buried. And inside the fuselage, it was full to within three feet of the ceiling. So were the people that were 
very unfortunately killed where they maybe the closest to the exit area like that kind of makeshift wall they made why was it them i think just kind of luck the angle at which your body's thrown against the, mm. the walls you know it's just if your neck breaks or if you get on the bottom of the pile and suffocate under the snow mm. so but now you are for those who didn't die you dig yourself out of this pile of snow and find that you have three feet of headroom and there are with eight less people 19, I, I think 19 of you crammed into this uh, uh, three foot high space. Mm-hmm. The survivors quickly realized they were running out of air. <sighs> the team captain was dead and now Nando Parado took the lead. He pried a metal pole free from the luggage rack and pried one of the cockpit windows ajar enough to stick the pole through. And once he got it through the snow, they could breathe through it. Little air hole. Wow. Just the will to live is is incredible in these kinds of stories cuz me, I don't I, I don't know. I, I guess some stuff kicks in instinctually, but I'm thinking I'm going to go get that gun. Well, even <laughs> and, now, and take and take myself out cuz I can't do this. Even now, okay, we can breathe a little better. What next? Cuz exactly. the plane's still buried. So on October 31st, after a day and a half of digging, They broke through to the surface to find there was a furious blizzard outside and they had to just go back into the fuselage. They were trapped for three more days in that space with the three feet of headroom in pressed in together with the newly dead corpses of their eight friends. And of course, after a few days, they were starving again and they had to eat the raw freshly killed not deep frozen flesh of their yeah, friends who had just died next to them that's the thing it's it's inside so they're probably decomposing at least uh, slower than they would have but yeah. Fido Strouch and his cousin Eduardo actually I don't know if Eduardo or Fido was the German one of them was the German but they were both German uh, and Daniel Fernandez took over as kind of collective leaders now with Perez dead mm-hmm and they were the ones who took it upon themselves to cut the meat and distribute it around the cramped cabin space. Parado said uh, this was the worst meal he had had yet. It was soft and greasy, streaked with blood and bits of wet gristle. I gagged hard when I placed it in my mouth. Mm. And that's a man who's already been eating pieces of his friends for a week. Mm-hmm. When the warming sun finally melted the snow enough to leave the fuselage, all that was on anybody's minds was organizing an expedition to explore the area around them and hopefully work toward finding some help. Mm-hmm. So R- Roberto Canessa, Nando Parado, and Antonio Vizintin were nominated to go. And so, in preparation for the journey, these boys were all given larger shares of the rations the warmest clothes, and light duties around camp while they waited for seven days to let the weather warm up a little. And I guess Knessa kept going like, I'm not quite ready to go yet. We should wait for the weather to get a little warmer. I I really don't think because he was living high on the hog with these larger rations or anything. I think just because it was a good idea to let, let it be a little warmer. And he, at this point, was pretty nervous about everything. 
Well, also, unfortunately, if you wait a few days, you have time to dry out some meat to bring with you because you're going to need rations on this journey. On November 15th, the boys departed. Now, they figured Chile is probably somewhere to the west of them, but there was a giant mountain there Mm -hmm. and glacier. So they settled for heading east, hoping they would find a ridge and be able to circuitously kind of make their way around. After a few hours of walking... Uh, which brought them one mile east and downhill from the fuselage, they found the tail cone of the airplane. Mm-hmm. There was luggage scattered nearby and inside the tail cone, in which they found a box of chocolates, three meat patties, a bottle of rum and cognac, cigarettes, comics, extra clothes, and some medicine, and the aircraft's two-way radio. So now they had a walkie-talkie. Mm-hmm. They decided but not to, with anyone. No, outside. Yeah, of course not. They decided to camp inside the tail cone for the night. They stayed up late reading comics by the fire, and meanwhile, back at the fuselage, Arturo Noguera succumbed to gangrene due to his injuries. He was the one who had the multiple Broken. breaks in both legs. Mm. On November sixteenth, the boys now camped in the tail cone, marched further east, and then made camp for the night outside for the first time and very nearly froze to death. Yeah. So the next morning it was like, oh, it's clear that's not going to work. We li- we definitely almost died last night without until we huddled together. Um, so they decided to get the airplane batteries from the tail and bring them back to the group to get the radio going at the plane. The actual radio that could contact help, right? Mm-hmm. They got back to the tail. They realized the batteries were like 53 pounds a piece. So they went, okay, we'll go back to the fuselage and we'll bring the radio back to the tail. Remember how much effort everything takes. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they went to the fuselage, there was a guy named Roy Harley who was like, I love electronics. I'd, I'll come. And so Roy came with them. Now, now the, the four boys head back to the tail cone. And the thing is, the aircraft used 115-volt AC power, and the batteries they had found were 24-volt DC power, so this whole thing was pointless from the start. But they did spend two days trekking back and forth trying to make it work. I mean, you're desperate. <laughs> this is this is power. Let's try it. Let's stick some wires and figure it out. On the last day, they were caught in a blizzard on the way back to the fuselage. And with, like, I think a quarter mile left to go... Roy Harley just laid down in the snow and asked the group to leave him to die. Uh, Parado refused and just got him to his feet and they, you know, everyone got back to the fuselage. Okay. Wow. Just goes to show you if you're in that, if you think you're going to be the person to lay down and go like, I'm dead. Just don't, just don't do that. Cause maybe you're, maybe you're not. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Also on November 18th, Raphael Echeverin died from gangrene from his wounds. Also sustained in the crash. Now, having found nothing to the east, the survivors decided their only hope was for someone to climb west over the mountain. Uh-huh. It was also super clear now that they, if they didn't have a way to get out of the cold at night, they were going to die of exposure. And this hike would be real short. Um, so, Parado and Byzantine and Canessa's idea was to make a sleeping bag. They had found some insulation in the rear of the plane 
Mm-hmm. They still had some of that copper wire, and they were able to rip some waterproof fabric from the air conditioning unit. <laughs> wow. Uh, Parado said, as we brainstormed about the trip, we realized we could sew the patches together to create a large warm quilt. Then we realized that by folding the quilt in half and stitching the seams together, we could create an insulated sleeping bag large enough for all three expeditionaries to sleep in. With the warmth of three bodies trapped by the insulating cloth, we might be able to weather the coldest nights. Carlitos took on the challenge. This was uh, Paez was his last name. His mother had taught him to sew when he was a boy, and with the needles and thread from the sewing kit found in his mother's cosmetics case, he began to work. To speed the process, Carlitos taught others to sew, and we all took our turns. Coche, Gustavo, and Fido turned out to be our best and fastest tailors. They must have had a lot of... I mean, I've been doing a little cross-stitching, and you run out of thread quickly. They must have had a lot of thread in that sewing kit to be able to make a sleeping bag. Well, they only have to do the one stitch around the side. They're not doing, like, patterns. It's a lot. No, but it's a lot. It's a lot of thread. Yeah, To, like, keep it sealed. I guess, would you know how to break down clothing into thread? It'll just happen if just you pull it off, right? I guess. You have to try and rip on it so it can fit through a needle. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> um, another death would follow on December 11th, the same day the sleeping bag was finished. This was a boy named Numa Turkati. And he was one of the last holdout, holdouts on the cannibalism as well. Though he was eventually persuaded to eat, Numa was completely repulsed by the cannibalism and could never hold much of it down. Mm-hmm. And by his death on the 60th day after the crash, he weighed 55 pounds. Oh, my God. He's an athlete. That's like the size of a toddler. Yeah. Wow. Canessa was still apparently leery about the trek west because it was such a crazy climb over the mountain. Um, but after Numa's death, the boys were mostly sure they would all be dead if they didn't find help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because this is this is someone who didn't die from gangrene or infection or, or an accident or whatever. He died because he didn't have nutrition. So that's what's waiting for them because yeah. even if you eat all of the bodies, that's not going to last forever. And aside from the two medical students, I think basically everyone remaining is from the team or just a friend of a teammate who was brought along. So these are all young men at Mm -hmm. this point. On December 11th, Byzantine, Parado, and Canessa, the three expeditionaries, headed out west. Still believing they were close to Carrico, the boys figured they were near the western edge of the Andes. And heading west was going to get them to like green, the green valleys of Chile pretty quick. So they only brought three days worth of meat. They had, remember, no technical gear. There's no, there's no petons, you know, there's no uh, ropes, uh, no maps, no hiking experience of any kind. Um, Parado said, just for cold weather gear, so try to picture this. He was wearing three pairs of jeans and three sweaters over a polo shirt. He was wearing four pairs of socks wrapped in plastic bags. Um, and probably like cleats. <laughs> um, and probably like, yeah, soccer. Yeah, like rugby cleats. Which I guess would be better than regular shoes. In the, in the at 70s. At least they're kind of cleaty, you know, they, they got the texture on the bottom. In the 70s, how specialized were sports shoes? This might have just been a flat sneaker, like a Chuck Taylor. It could have been, yeah. 
Um, oh, that would just be, that would be terrible. Uh, just sliding a strip all of over the place. <laughs> terrible. So there was a ridge to the west that probably would have been a little easier to climb, but again, these guys had no hiking experience, and they made directly for the peak. Um, and at first, they figured they would make it to the peak in about a day. Parada was especially um, enthusiastic and optimistic, and he kept streaking ahead of the other two. And then Canessa and Visentin said they had to remind, like, go, hey, we got to conserve our strength, slow down. Mm-hmm. The snow was now being softened by the summer sun. Remember, December is high summer in the southern hemisphere. So they were often sinking right up to their hips in the snow, mm-hmm. which made for really slow going. And, and it's still cold and wet and not good for you. Yeah. Uh, Roberto Canessa says the night one of this hike was the worst night of his life, even worse than the night after the plane crash. Wow. They couldn't find a place to put the sleeping bag because everything was just soft snow. Mm-hmm. like four like three feet deep mm-hmm. so they finally had they when they finally found a little rock shelf they had to put the sleeping bag right on the edge of like a bottomless chasm <sighs> the survivors at the fuselage <laughs> to give you an idea of how far they're traveling over this time the, the humans are incredible just the will to live is so That's mind-boggling like Tyrion lannister in the sky cells yeah um the survivors back at the fuselage watched their friend's progress visually for the first three days of the hike. That's how slow they were moving. Mm-hmm. Well, and how high up they were. On December 13th, Canessa decided to stay at the camp they had made for the day while Visentin and Parado went further west and found the bottom of the ridge, which it turned out was a more or less vertical 300 foot wall of ice and snow it's like it's like the wall yeah game of thrones parado said that he was determined to hike out of there or die trying pulled a stick out of his pack and started carving snow and started carving steps in the snow of the wall he was the first one to reach the peak the first human to climb this peak (laughs) that we know of he was now at 15,260 feet elevation, wearing plastic bags on his feet. Planes go that high. And Parado expected to see on the other side, again, the green valleys of Chile. No. And this is that Shaun of the Dead. Lots. Mm-hmm. Because instead he saw snow-covered mountain peaks literally as far as he could see in every direction. So he and Parada, he and Byzantine returned to Canessa. That night they were sipping cognac they had found in the tail of the plane. As Parado said, Roberto, can you imagine how beautiful this would be if we were not dead men? Yeah. Wow. On December 14th, in the morning, the expeditionaries agreed this was obviously going to take a lot longer than they had initially given it credit for. They didn't have enough rations. They have to go. Well, Byzantin left his rations and headed back to the fuselage himself. Wow. It was all downhill, by the way. They had been hiking uphill this whole time. And so he took an airplane seat, used it as a sled, and made it back what they had hiked in three days. He made it back in one hour. What? Wow. Meanwhile, Parado and Canessa took three hours to climb back to the summit. This was Canessa's first time seeing the view from the top, 
And his first thought, he said, when he saw all the mountains was just, oh, we're dead. Yeah. Uh, on the western horizon, though, Parado thought he saw two peaks that were not capped in snow. And there was, appeared to be a valley stretching from those peaks, maybe to the base of the mountain they were standing on. And so Parado said, declared his intention to make for those peaks and see what he could do. He's quoted as saying, we may be walking to our deaths, but I would rather walk to meet my death than wait for it to come to me. To which Canessa supposedly said, you and I are friends, Nando. We've been through so much. Now let's go die together. And they climbed down the ridge and into the valley. Stone cold, even at this point. I love it. These guys are incredible. Several more days of hiking followed. In the bottom of the valley was a river, the Rio San Jose, and they followed the direction of the water, and the men soon had reached the snow line. So, no more snow. Mm-hmm. On the seventh and eighth days of their hike, they started to see some evidence of human presence, including abandoned campsites. And on day nine, which was December 19th, so this is about nine weeks. Yeah. From when they crashed. Yeah. Yeah. And change. Wow. Now the crows weren't the first living things they'd seen in the past two months. Uh, there had been a couple of buzzards that started circling <laughs> over their camp unsettlingly, like <sighs> on a daily basis, starting maybe a month in. Well, cause it was littered in corpses. Sure. Right? Of course. But it's, you know, you're not seeing anything else. You can't hunt anything. They were really big. So it's the, very mocking. The guys were afraid and the guys were getting smaller by the day. So they were actually afraid they would be swooped up, like swooped away by the buzzards. Oh, like a little chihuahua? Like just scooped up. Yeah. So it wasn't the first living thing they'd seen in a long time, but it was a much more comforting presence. These crows, much more lifelike presence than the buzzards mm -hmm. and uh, the couple of bugs they had seen. Um, both men were exhausted, and Parado didn't think Canessa would be able to go any further that day or the next day. And as they were gathering firewood for their camp, they saw three men on horseback on the other side of the river. So Parado saw them, he got their attention, but the river was too loud, so they couldn't hear him. And one of the men, named Sergio Catalan, yelled, Tomorrow! Like, I'll, I'll come back tomorrow. Which was like, well, maybe we could figure this out now. Yeah. But, but the following day, he was he came back. Okay, good. <laughs> and he tied a note to a rock asking who they were and how they'd gotten there. And Nando tied a reply to the rock and threw it back. It said, I come from a plane that fell in the mountains. I am Uruguayan. We have been walking for 10 days. I have a wounded friend up there. In the plane, there are still 14 injured people. We have to get out from here quickly, and we don't know how. We don't have any food. We are weak. When are you going to come fetch us? Please, we cannot even walk. Where are we? <laughs> Sergio Catalan, who was a muleteer. He had a little mule and he would put stuff on it and go from place to place. I mean, a good guy to run into. Um, he turned to his two buddies and they chatted for a little bit. Uh, they had heard about the disaster, but they would never have imagined that anyone was still alive right. from that plane crash two months ago. And so uh, Sergio threw the boys a hunk of bread that he had in his bag, hopped on his horse, and rode 10 hours west to bring help back. Uh, along the way, he met another muleteer he knew, and he said, oh, you know what? There's these two guys. He gave him the location and said, go get them. Uh -huh. 
When he got to Puente Negro, he alerted the police, who then alerted the Chilean army, who then alerted the Argentinian army. Uh, Meanwhile, Roberto and Nando, who had just hiked 38 miles through the snow in 10 days, were brought to Carrico and fed and given time to rest. Roberto Canessa at this point weighed about 97 pounds, which is just barely more than half of what he weighed when they crashed. And it wasn't that long ago, you know? Two months. Two months and you weigh half. Wow. Years later, in 2007, uh, Sergio Catalan, this muleteer, would mention in a TV interview that he had hip osteoarthritis and it was making him hard, hard for him to walk and it was really painful. Um, and Roberto Canessa happened to be watching the broadcast and he contacted the other remaining survivors and uh, they all raised the money for uh, Catalan's surgery. That's so nice. For his hip replacement. Yeah. Oh. Um, because Canessa is a doctor now. Um, and a, b- a big part of his book on this is about how what this book taught, what this experience taught him about life and death and courage and, and how it pushed him to, to finish his medical training. The Chilean Air Force provided three helicopters, and Army officers interviewed Nando and Roberto about where their friends were. There were a bunch of reporters who wanted to interview them too, but they had to wait. Um, Nando volunteered actually to go in the helicopter and guide the rescuers to his friends. That must have been very frightening. I mean, talk about the amount there again. Right, talk about the amount of courage you need to do that but you know you have to do it to, to get these people help it's uh it's pretty Im- impressive so the next day was december 22nd 1972 when the two choppers finally reached the survivors the ground was so steep on the glacier that the choppers could only touch down with one skid they couldn't land all the way mm-hmm. and there wasn't enough space. It wasn't safe enough at this altitude. The choppers could only take seven of the 14 survivors on this first trip. So four members of the search team volunteered to stay behind with the other survivors as they spent one last night in the fuselage on the mountain. Mm-hmm. At daybreak the next morning, the final survivors were taken to Santiago hospitals. Hospitals, plural. It's a lot of patients. Yeah. For treatment for altitude sickness, dehydration, frostbite, broken bones, scurvy, and malnutrition. This was December 23rd. Now, what happened to the third guy? That Wasn't there a third guy they were hiking with? He rode the, the, the seat all oh, the way back. Oh, right. So he's back at the plane. Yeah. Okay. Now, the bodies left on the mountain in this kind of a situation normally would be recovered for burial, but um, it was hard to get choppers up there in the first place. And also, there were legal difficulties because they were, these were Chilean military choppers, um, Uruguayan bodies, and uh, the crash site was actually in Argentina. Okay, they're dead bodies, though. You can get the survivors, get the bodies. Well, ultimately, but maybe there was some concern about upsetting the family involved. I don't know. Because hmm. the 28 bodies were ultimately buried on site by a group of 12 men and one Chilean priest on January 18th of 73. The families were not allowed to attend the burial. The bodies were placed into a mass grave. Well, I should say a communal, a communal grave is a friendlier way of saying, but they, they were put into the same hole between one quarter and one half mile from the fuselage. The barriers built an altar from a pile of rocks. They put an orange cross on top with a plaque 
saying, The world to its Uruguayan brothers, close, O God, to you. Thirteen of the bodies, they said, were mostly untouched. The other 15 were mostly skeletal. Wow. The remains of the fuselage were then doused in gasoline and set on fire. Although one of the survivors who had visited in recent years said the tail cone is still there. Why did they set it on fire? Why not just leave it? I don't know. Okay. I truly don't. Okay. Um, maybe because it, that's all the evidence of the cannibalism. Yeah. I mean, you know, just, just a tricky just kind of thing. Yeah, yeah maybe. Um, Ricardo Echavarin, um, the father of Rafael Echavarin one of the boys who had died, Mm -hmm. heard from one of the other survivors that his son had lamented out loud that he wouldn't be able to be buried at home. And so Ricardo prearranged with the priest who was involved in this mass burial to have Raphael's bag marked. And Ricardo then paid guides to bring him up the mountain to recover the body of his son. As he got back to town with the marked body bag containing his loved one, he was immediately arrested for grave robbing. But thanks to the help of a sympathetic federal judge and the local mayor, Echevarren was released and was allowed to bury his son the way he wanted. I'm giving Carrie a moment. That's a lot for you, Carrie. I don't know why that just hit me like that. Wow. The determination to uh to honor your child's last wishes. I mean, he's not rescuing him. He knows he's going to get a dead body. Mm-hmm. So and then you pay guides to go to this horrible place that your child could not survive. Uh it's just pretty incredible. In March two thousand six Way, way, way later, the families of the victims and the survivors erected a large black obelisk as a monument at the crash site. And you can go see it because this is, I don't want to say tourist destination, but this is a place you can get guided tours now. Hundreds of people, at least that's not a crazy huge number, hundreds of people each year go and do a three-day trek by ATV, then horseback, ultimately camping on the glacier for a night before finally reaching the crash site to pay tribute on day three. Um, to learn more in person, to more kind of uh, uh, living history stuff, you can also visit the Andes Museum, 1972, which opened a couple of decades ago in Montevideo, Uruguay. Um, and that's the story of the... So what do you think, Carrie? Was this the Andean flight disaster... Or was this the miracle in the Andes? Whew. Little, <laughs> little column A, little column B. I think it's... You can't have the miracle without the disaster and this you know, is vice a, versa. This is an inspirational story. Yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think part of the reason that I was... <clears throat> re researching Everest and everything when I was was because we had all just gone through such such a crazy time with the pandemic and everything and feeling really hopeless and stuff and that was a situation that was very terrible and frightening and, and stuff but there were these 
moments of true heroism and, and just human achievement that were very humbling. And this is definitely in that, like, <laughs> in that genre, for sure. I mean, to me, it sounds like the most terrifying thing that could ever happen, right? It, yeah, it's, it's one of, the, it's certainly, you would hope it's the worst thing that ever happened to any of these people. Right. And, um, like I said, you know, I, you, of course, you can't help but place yourself in these people's shoes. And when I do that, I think I would not make it, you know, I just, <laughs> I hate walking around the city, like, and in, in a good temperature with great clothing, you know, because I want to be there. So you're not, you're not hiking up a, a, a sheer cliff face with ba- plastic bags on your feet and a belly full of uh, your teammates? <laughs> And cognac. A belly full. His belly was not full. Yeah, you know, I don't know what I would do. You don't know what you would do in in that situation. I think now I wouldn't be able to do it, but maybe I would. Maybe there's just some part of you that just pulls it out. You you always hope you would be one of the Roberto Canessas or the Nando Parados who refuses not to help, who is constantly looking for the next plan. And just... The idea of these two guys <clears throat> hiking 38 miles in the worst conditions possible just for some shred of hope for themselves and their friends is very moving. And when they were on that peak, when they started the hike down, I think they truly did believe pretty, you know, pretty surely that they were going to die. Yeah. But they want they they went on their terms, and there's there's something very incredible about that. So yeah, something about this story, stories like this. Um, it's also kind of amazing how many people bravery. How, you know. how many people survived the initial crash? Yeah, like if this was somewhere temperate, and they had radio contact, a lot of these people would have survived. Yeah, it's um it's an incredible story. Uh, I didn't realize it was so emotional. I mean, you know, I, I figured the emotion would just be fear and, and dread and terror. But there's a lot. There's there's the miracle, too. Powerful. Yeah. And, uh, and it's all just sheer willpower and bravery and courage and tenacity. It's, it's the best of people. Yeah. Well, it sounds like we have a movie to go watch. Yeah. Hell yeah. When I stop crying. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. In a bit of an update from our news of despair last week, it's Crying Saucers. 
It was heavily in the news that after the Chinese spy balloon incident a couple weeks ago, a trio of unidentified flying objects, though not necessarily flying saucers, were shot down over U.S. territory. Many wondered why these incidents were happening so frequently now when it was such a rare occurrence before. Well, as reported on CBS News, President Biden addressed the speculation on Thursday, saying there is no evidence these UAPs are related to the surveillance operations of a foreign power. Said Biden, quote, We don't yet know exactly what these three objects were, but nothing right now suggests they were related to China's spy balloon program or that they were surveillance vehicles from any other country. The intelligence community's current assessment is that these three objects were mostly balloons tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions studying weather or conducting other scientific research. Hey guys, why are we throwing up so many balloons? <laughs> I didn't know there were so many balloons involved in life anymore. There's just a hobbyist hot air ballooner up there <laughs> over Alaska. What's going on? Well, I hope he didn't get shot. Thomas now. Jefferson trying out his new technology. <laughs> Biden also sought to make it clear that the U.S. is not looking for a new Cold War with China, which, uh, thanks, that's a good thing. Good. Uh, and said he will be speaking with Chinese President Xi Jinping soon, though he made no apologies for taking down the initial spy balloon. He further explained why this all seemed to be happening so often as of late. Quote, we don't have any evidence that there has been a sudden increase in the number of objects in the sky. We're now just seeing more of them partially because of the steps we've taken to increase our radars, to narrow our radars. And we have to keep adapting our approach to dealing with these challenges. I love increasing our radars to narrow our radars. Absolutely. <laughs> so it seems clear that radar was made more sensitive uh, after the spy balloon situation for obvious reasons and started picking up more recreational or weather objects than it used to previously because of that sensitivity. A new interagency group has been created to determine how to handle these objects moving forward, which is good, uh, because if we do happen to get visited by a genuine flying saucer, starting things off with extraterrestrials by introducing an act of war and shooting them down is probably the wrong foot to get on. Though the president continued, quote, Make no mistake, if any object presents a threat to the safety and security of the American people, I will take it down. Personally. <laughs> yeah, he's going to fly right up there. Oh, we listen to our uh, Fermi Paradox series <laughs> from last year for more on attacking aliens. This new team will be studying the unidentified aerial phenomena, though the White House right now has stressed these objects aren't indications of aliens. Sure. So that's the update. So it's just the radar is more sensitive, and that's why we're shooting things down. And if we choose to believe that, we choose to believe that. Hope I'm I'm I I'm stressed out enough. I'm gonna believe it for now. Well, I don't know. I think he's just a. I think he's in the bag for for big hot air balloon. <laughs> the big, big hot Martian. air balloon lobby. Yeah, oh, big Martian. <laughs> Carrying the Majestic 12. It's all happening. Oh, great. I don't need anything else to happen. Valiant Thor! That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary. And check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529. 
And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We sure will. Special thanks to our favorite people already joining us over there on Patreon. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain. Oh, Sean, happy birthday this week. Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, and Ozzy Sean Downs. <laughs> happy birthday, Sean. Not mccabe o'donnell and see you next thursday everyone show created by sean and carrie mccabe music by kyle ryan you can find kyle at his youtube channel music is a verb ain't it scary has been brought to you by killer podcasts and is a production of long boy media you might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight cisgender white men and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either she's wendy and i'm beth and together we host fruit loops serial killers of color a true crime podcast together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold we also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve at fruit loops we're serving up true crime with a side of history society culture and some fun listen to fruit loop serial killers of color on spotify google play apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts